We are starting a new series today entitled, Let's Build Something Big. Oh, man. I'm in the wrong service. First service, they got it from the get-go. Let's build something big. Now, some of you, some of you are thinking, oh, here we go. He's about to reel us in for something. Nope. Not at all. Not at all. I want you to know something. That you are not an ordinary person. Listen to me. Whether you are a child of God, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or you haven't, the potential is still the same. Because what God did, he did for all mankind. For all mankind. And so you are destined for great things. You're destined for more. Say that with me if you believe it. God intends more for my life. All right, the right congregation just showed up. There's some believers up in here. Listen, 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 listen. Honestly, now some of you, you might hear this and you might go, oh, here he goes with that prosperity stuff. Listen, well, number one, it is the gospel, right? But I'm not simply talking about material thing, although that does come with the package with Jesus. But what I'm talking about is that, listen, wherever you are, Whatever age, whatever stage, whatever circumstance, wherever you've been, God intends you to do something more in your life. There's more for you. And I would encourage you to start thinking about what you settled for already. Listen, some of you young people, you, you've bought into the lie that it's like, this is what life is about. This is, this is what it is. This is what we do this is all I know. This is what my family life is all about. This is what I was taught. This is the example I've been given. And let me encourage you with something. You have yet to know that there's more for your life. There's more for your life. If I had known what I know now from the gospel at the age of 15, I wouldn't have went through 12 years of what could have been. It, it wasn't hell itself, but it, you, it might as well have been. We don't have to make the mistakes that we, have, that we make sometimes. But many times we do it because, one, we're ignorant of the truth. And two, sometimes we're just unwilling to hear the truth. And so today, I have the privilege to point you to the Word of God. And I want to start off with a story, a true story as a matter of fact, based upon the lives of two brothers. On December 17, 1903 at 10.35 a.m., Orville Wright, secured his place in history by executing the first powered and sustained flight from the level ground. For 12 gravity-defying seconds, he flew 120 feet long, uh, I'm sorry, 120 feet along the dunes of the Outer Banks of North Carolina. In the field of aviation, this historic event represents a beginning. But for Orbel and Wilbur Wright, it was the end of a long and tedious journey. A journey that was initiated by a dream common to every little boy. The desire to fly. But what most children abandoned to the domain of fantasy, Orville and his brother Wilbur Wright seized upon as potential reality. They believed that they might fly. More than that, they believed they must fly. Wilbur described the birth of their dream this way. He says, Our personal interest in aviation dates from our childhood days. Late in the autumn of 1878, our father came into the house one evening 
with some object partly concealed in his hands. And before we could see what it was, he tossed it into the air. Instead of falling to the floor as we expected, it flew across the room till it struck the ceiling where it fluttered a while longer and then finally sank to the floor. It was a little toy known to scientists in the French language as an helicoptere, but which we, with sublime disregard for science, at once dubbed a bat. It was a light frame of cork and bamboo covered with paper, which formed two screws driven in opposite directions by rubber bands under torsion. A toy so delicate lasted only a short time in the hands of small boys, but its, but its memory lasted a lifetime. The childhood experience sparked in the boys an insatiable desire to fly. The only thing they lacked was a means. And so they immediately went to work removing the obstacles that stood between them and their dream. They began building their own helicopteres. In doing so, they stumbled upon the principles of physic, physics that would pave the way to their first successful manned flight. In short, they began to engineer the vision that had been born in them. They took the necessary steps to ensure that what they believed could be and would be. And until this very day, ladies and gentlemen, we are reaping the benefits of that dream that was realized in the hearts of two small boys. This story serves to illustrate some great truths that are founded in God's heart for you and I. Listen, maybe God might not play such a big part in your life. Let me say something to you. Regardless of the part that you allow God to play in your life, God plays a big part in your life. He loves you. As a matter of fact, he's the one that's been watching over you all these years. Really. And so we see a couple of things just from this story as we get started here today that I want to just point out to you. That God really has created you for greater things. Say that with me. God has created me, created me. For, greater things. for greater things. You mean that? Yeah. All right, good. God calls you to shift from the realm of dreams to the realm of reality. God is, is a God that calls us to do things that are bigger than what we could conceive in our own mind what we can uh, bring up in our own plans, what we, can, what we can connive and put together in our own efforts. God does greater. You don't believe me? God's word says this, that he does exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond what you and I can ask or imagine. That's the God that we serve. And the privilege that we have is that to the extent that we dare to dream and act upon what God is birthing in our hearts as we receive his word, to that extent we'll experience it. How many of you believe you serve a big God? Okay, good. Hey, how about this? How about starting to dream according to the size of your God instead of the size of what you see? We serve a big God. God calls you and I to remove the obstacles that stand in the way of realizing his plan for our lives. Stop praying to God to do something that he's already equipped you to do. We're called to be mountain movers. 
Jesus said, you tell the mountain to move and it shall be removed. The thing is, do we dare to, to believe what the word says and act upon it? So we're the ones called to remove the obstacles, not God. And one of the biggest obstacles, obstacles is right here between these two ears in our mind. And lastly, the moment you take your first steps towards the greater things that God has for you, you'll discover the principles of faith that will pave the way for you to fly in life and with God. You're created for more, ladies and gentlemen. That's the big idea today. You are created for more. I don't care where you've been. I really don't care. I'm going to tell you why. Because what God says is greater. I don't care how good it is. It gets gooder. <laughs> and guess what? Maybe you're at gooder. Let me, hey, newsflash, it gets gooderer. <laughs> you get my point here, right? I'm, I'm just messing, but it's the truth. With God, it gets better and better and better, but here's the key. It begins with the vision that you engineer in your heart. It begins with what you're doing. See, right now you're hearing the word of God. And praise God, I'm so excited that you're here, that you took time out of your schedule, that you maybe set something aside and said, I'm going to the house of the Lord today. Maybe somebody brought you with them. Praise God, I'm glad you're here because it's not by accident. Maybe you've never thought or even conceived in your mind that God is so good and God has something so much more than where you're at. That God really does intend your best and your latter days to be better than the rest that you've already experienced. And so it begins with a vision and today you're hearing the word and the Bible says that by the word we hear and according to what we hear, faith is come. And so today there's a prime opportunity for you and I for faith to have to begin to work and move and, and begin to build and, 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 and reorganize some things in our hearts and in our minds to the extent that we can begin to make room for where God is leading and guiding you and I. The good plan that he has for you. And so I want you to join me for the next 30 seconds in a quick exercise. I want you to get inside your own thoughts. And I'm going to ask you, to join me in this exercise by closing your eyes. Some of you, just by the look in your face, are like, I'm not doing that. I don't trust. I don't know. Trust me, nobody's going to do anything to you. Just close your eyes for 30 seconds. And I want you to envision yourself living your life in a space where you are experiencing and doing great things. The greatest things, as a matter of fact. The things that God has called you to in life. And I want to pose a question for you as you're there and you're seeing what you see. I want to ask you, what do you see? Really hone in on that. Bring your lens in on that. What do you see? Let me ask you this. What are you doing at this very moment in that space? Who are the people with you? And what are they doing with you? How is what you're doing making a difference in your life, but also in the life of others and in the kingdom of God? Now, still with your eyes closed, I want you to slowly pull back your lens 
and widen your scope of view so that you have a great vantage point. And I want to ask you, what are the obstacles that you see in your way right now? Now open your eyes with me. For some of you, I know this to be true. That as you've widened your lens, the picture is very clear. It's very clear. As a matter of fact, you can even see the colors. You can smell the smells. You can see yourself walking in it, doing it. For some of you, what you see seems like a picture that's too big. It's just too big for you. It's too unbelievable. It doesn't seem possible. For some of you, the picture seems a bit fuzzy. That canvas isn't quite clear. There's something there, but you quite can't put your finger on what it is. And for some of you, that canvas seems blank. I have good news for you, whatever stage, age, wherever you are in life right now. I have really good news for you. That wherever you find yourself, it's okay. Now listen closely to what I'm saying. I am not saying it's okay to stay there. But what I am saying is that it's okay because for all of us, despite what we see right now, we all have one thing in common. There's a big canvas that God has given you. And that canvas speaks of your potential. It speaks of the greater things that God is inviting you and I to do. It's the invitation from God that says, let's do something big. Let's build something big. The Word of God says this, that you're a joint heir with Christ. In other words, everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to you. And the Bible goes on to say this, that you are a co-laborer with God in Christ. And so there is a work that God is inviting you and I to do. It's bigger than what you've seen. It's bigger than what you conceive. And let me tell you something. Don't let the size of it intimidate you. Because faith calls us to see something that we've never seen before. Faith calls us to draw from something we've never done before. Faith calls you to go somewhere you've never been and to believe in something that you've never done. The Bible says this. It says that faith is the substance. It's the form. It's the basis. It's the reality of the things that we hope for. And it says that it is the evidence of the things that are not yet seen. And so what I'm saying to you is this. If it looks too big, guess what? You can, be, you can bet your bottom dollar God's in the midst of it. God's in the midst of it. God's calling you to more. Oh, but I'm comfortable. I love the Lord. I go to church. There's more than what you know. There's more than what you've been. Some of us, we've been Christians for a long time. The question is, have we taken a step of faith towards something bigger? Or have we settled for just plain Jane, even Stephen, normal and ordinary? No, we serve, we serve an extraordinary God. 
We're called to an extraordinary life. Extraordinary. Beyond what we know. And so, for the next several weeks, we're going to be diving in to the book of Nehemiah. And we're going to be taking it apart bit by bit and examining the life of this man, Nehemiah, and gleaning from it truths that lend themselves to teach us and to encourage us to go for more, to build something bigger, to believe beyond what we've imagined or could have thought in our own minds. And so turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And as you're turning there, or you're following this on the screen, I want to tell you something about Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a man of God, but Nehemiah did not know how great a task God had before him. Nehemiah was built for great things. And I challenge you that as we dive into this story today and we glean from the word that you see yourself in Nehemiah's shoes. Because Nehemiah's story is not just Nehemiah's story. It's your story. It's the story that God is looking to inscribe upon your heart and to use to renew your mind. Amen? And so let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. And we're going to start at verse 1 and we're going to read all the way through to verse 11. It says... The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Man, his parents tore his name up. Can you imagine calling your son Hakaliah? Hakaliah, get over here! And I'm sorry, my brain just went there for a moment. I'm, I'm really sorry about that. Let's get back to this. <laughs> the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year. Let me just pause there real quick. It's very important that we understand what's, when this is happening. The month of Kislev, according to the Jewish calendar, is right around Christmas time. It's right around that time. You'll see the importance of that later on. But in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hannah and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that I had excuse me, that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So let me just, let's just pause there for a moment. Let me give you some, some context here. Let me, let me widen the scope here for you so you get what, what's happening here. Nehemiah finds himself at the citadel of Susa. Why is that important? Because he is in a land called Persia. And he is there captive. He is there against his own will. The people of Israel have been uh, conquered by an empire of Persia. And previous to that, they were, they were under the... the um, they were conquered by another uh, empire called the Babylonians. So they went from Nebuchadnezzar, now they've got this guy who you'll you'll hear about in a little bit, named Artaxerxes, um, who's their current, uh, the current uh, ruler of this empire. And so they're captive. So Nehemiah is not in a good situation. He's, He's in a bad one, right? But what's also important for us to understand here is that uh, Nehemiah 
is now inquiring about the people and what he's hearing is that they're not in a good situation. So much so that in verse 3 when it says that the, the province, the people in the province are in great trouble, that word trouble means uh, wickedness. It means that it's really, really bad. So not only are things bad for them in every way, but these people, it's gotten so bad that they have set themselves apart. They've departed from the, the, the truth, the promises of God, and they're now living wickedly. They're doing things that they, they were never meant to do. They're living in a manner that they've never been meant to live. And the proof of that is that they're in their New York City, so to speak, of the people of Israel. They're in Jerusalem. That's their New York City. And the walls are destroyed. The gates have been destroyed with fire. And they're living in ruins. And they're okay with it. So get that picture. And so verse 4 says, When I heard these things, speaking of Nehemiah, he says that he sat down and he wept. Just to give you some greater context here. Uh, well, let me just read that to you. It says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. And for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now, for some of us who've been around for a long time, that sounds like that was a good thing. Like, oh, he's praying and he's fasting and he's mourning. Actually, if you read this according to the Hebrew, that word sat there means to settle. It means to settle in and to continue in something. And so literally what the Bible is telling us here is not that at that very moment he sat down and he had a moment and he went, oh my God, and he prayed to God. No, what it's telling us is that Nehemiah had a pity party. Nehemiah had a pity party for many days. That word mourn there means to lament, but here's what it also means. It means to complain. And so here's what it looks like for Nehemiah. Nehemiah is not going to the Lord in faith. Nehemiah is going to the Lord in, de in a depressed state. He's bought into what he sees and what he's heard, and he's crushed from within. And so verse 4 tells us that when he heard these things, he continued in a state of weeping and complaining and lamenting. And yeah, he did some praying too. But verse 5 is the kicker. Notice that verse 5 says this. If we could put that up, please. It says this. Then... How many of you know that there's a transition there? He says, then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. He says, I confess the sins, uh, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. He says, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands... Then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. He's speaking of Jerusalem there. And so Nehemiah goes on to pray, they are your servants. 
and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. He says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was a cupbearer to the king. And so a couple of things that we see here is that from the start, as we're introduced to Nehemiah and the people of Israel at this particular time, um, when this is occurring, they're in a really bad situation. It's really bad. Not only were they under the rule of a foreign power known as Persia, but they were once again scattered as a people. You might not know this. You might not know this, but uh, Bible history records that there were two other times prior to this where a man named Ezra, who was the high priest at the time, attempted to gather the people of Israel and bring them to Jerusalem. And he got them together, and both times they scattered again. And so what we're reading is the third time that the people of Israel are called to return to Jerusalem, as you'll see in a little bit. And so uh, they're scattered. They're in a bad situation. To make matters even worse, the walls that protected them and the central point of their dwelling place was destroyed. And according to what we're going to read in Scripture, they were disgraced before all surrounding nations. When the Bible talks about them being disgraced, it's talking about they were without favor. It's talking about that they were ashamed, that they were being mocked by all the nations around them. See, all the nations around them had heard of the God that brought them and delivered them from Egypt. They had heard of the God that time and time again destroyed their enemies and made a way for them and brought them into a place of promise. But now these same nations mock them. They're disgrace. They're without favor, or so they think. And lastly, what we see is that Nehemiah is a cupbearer. Now, to some of you, you that, don't make, that doesn't mean anything to you. But let me tell you what the function, the job description of a cupbearer was. A cupbearer was supposed to serve the king, right? But his job was to take any drink that was brought to the king and taste it first. Now, some of you might go, oh, that's cool, man. He got to taste some real good stuff. No, the reason why he was, he was, that, that was his job was because the king was observing to see if he dropped dead. Because if he dropped dead, then the king knew that was poisoned. It was a means by which to create a barrier for the king to, to be uh, killed. And so Nehemiah was in a bad situation, right? Every time he took a drink, he had to wonder, could this be the last time, right? And so what we see here is this, that the reference point that Nehemiah and the people of Israel have at this point for what is possible seems bad. Let me put it to you this way. If they were here today, sitting here, and I invited them to join the exercise that you did, and I said to them, close your eyes and envision God's greatest for you, they would have no reference point for it. Because all they saw was bad. It wasn't good. The people were believing for nothing. They had settled in ruins. And so, in verse 4, as we, as we heard, Nehemiah's in his pity party. 
But then in verse 5, something happens. Something shifts. Nehemiah says, then I said, and let's examine what Nehemiah says. We're not going to read it again, but I want you to consider what Nehemiah's in context, you know, in, in, you know, just summarizing it all. What Nehemiah does is this. Nehemiah remembers that God is a God of covenant, but a God of covenant of love. In other words, here's what he remembers. God, you love us. God, you have a plan for our lives. God, you made some great audacious promises for us. And so Nehemiah recognizes, God, you mean what you say. Some of us, we hear what the Bible says. We read what the Bible says. We even dare to study what it says. But the question is, do we believe that what God says is true for us? And so Nehemiah shifts from a pity party to recalling and remembering a good God. He remembers that God loves them. He recognizes also that where he and the people found themselves was in a good place. You know what he does? He recognizes where we're at is not where we're supposed to be. He recognizes, God, there's better. And he also recognizes this, God, we've gone wrong. He recognizes their mistake, his own mistake. And so, despite their situations, Nehemiah shifts from his pity party to remembering that God has redeemed his people before by his mighty hand and by his strength, and that God favored them. And so, that's important. What we see so far up to this point is very important because up until this point, we learn a few things from the life of Nehemiah and the people of Israel. We learn this, that we should not and that we cannot limit God and his big plans by what we see. Listen closely. For some of us, the reference point that we have for what we believe from God and what we believe is possible through our lives is the mistakes we've made. For some of us, the reference point that we have is, yeah, God's been good, but it's been a while. And so somehow we think that God is silent. We think that God is not present. For some of us, this is all brand new, a relationship with God. And so we're still trying to figure this all out, but we cannot go by what we see. It reminds me of a, a guy named Abraham, and we're not going to really dig into the story, but the gist of it is this, that God approaches this guy Abraham and his wife Sarah, and he says to them, you're going to have a son. Only problem is that the workshop was closed. Nothing was working. That shop was closed, baby. There were no more babies coming. Matter of fact, there had been none that came. Sarah was in her 90s, and Abraham was pushing 100. Now, none of us here are at that age, but some of us, we're a little bit more up there. Can you imagine being told, you're about to have a baby? <laughs> and so the Bible says, some of you are like, the devil is a liar. <laughs> Listen, the point of the story is this, that God comes to Abraham and Sarah in their old age, in their golden years, so to speak. And he says to them, this, this time next year, 
you're going to give birth to a son. And the Bible says that Sarah's in the background and she hears what the angel of the Lord says and she laughs. And check out the response of the Lord to them both. He says in Genesis 18 verse 14, he says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? Hey, that's a good question to consider wherever you're at in life. Is anything too hard for God? Is anything too hard for God? Now, it might seem hard to you, but is anything too hard for him, for the Lord? He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Show you how God works. No matter what you see, what I see will come to pass. The word of God says this, that he, that, that, he, that, that there is a work that he's doing in us and that he will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Until Jesus comes back, there's still a work in you that's materializing it and God will bring it forth. Parents, some of you need to hear this and take a hold of this. I don't care what you see in your children. You take a hold of the word of God and you trust the word of God in them. You sow the word. They can tell you, don't come to me with that Jesus stuff. I was a kid, newsflash. That was me. Mom, don't come to me with Jesus. I don't want to get your hands off me. Don't pray for me. I don't want to hear it. But God is faithful to his word. The Bible says this, that even when we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. You can trust God. And so anything that God calls you to do by faith will not be based upon what you see or know. That's important. I'm going to say that again. Anything that you are called to do by faith does not depend on what you see or currently know. God operates on his system, not yours. There's great room for excitement in that. Because guess what? For some of us, we've been doing it on our own. And man, that's been hard. There's a better way. The Bible says that there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is destruction. But listen, when we commit our ways to the Lord, Psalm 37 says that when we commit our way to him, he establishes the path before us. Man, there is, there is more. It gets better and better. Say that with me. Say that to your neighbor. It gets better. It gets better. Tell your other neighbor, it gets better. It <laughs> it's going to get better. Listen, something else that we learn up until this point in this story is that when you recognize where you've gone wrong, you can begin the process of building the right thing. You know what the Bible calls that? It's called repentance. Now, for some of us, here's what we think repentance is. We think that repentance is really feeling really, really bad, Lord. I'm so sorry. And we got to come up to the altar. We go, oh, Lord, it's not hanging and everything. That's not repentance. That's your sorrow. That's your thing. You know what repentance is? Repentance has nothing to do with feeling sorry. It has nothing to do with tears. You know what repentance is? It's simply turning around. That's what it is. See, Nehemiah recognized we've done wrong. God, I acknowledge that. We've messed up here, Lord. We're jacked up. But God... We're turning around. Amen. See, when you can turn around, when you turn around, just understand something that 
everything in your life starts to turn around. That's right. I don't know why I feel the need to say this, but some of you parents, when you begin to turn around, watch your household turn around. That's for all of us. That's not just you, parents. Young people, listen. You go to school and you just say, you know, this is what I do. And there's some people and you go, ooh, they're, they're, they're crazy. They're, 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 those are bad kids. Hey, listen, you are the light of the world. And the light is meant to go to dark places. You start turning it around and you watch how your school can turn around. You, some of you young people, you might go, well, my parents are a hot mess. Stop waiting for them to turn around. You turn around and watch things start to turn around in your life. Something else that we learn in the midst of this story up to this point is this, that our best tool for life is found in the promises of God. Listen, Nehemiah up until that point, his reference point was we're slaves. Everything's gone to, 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 to forget it. I mean, everything's just bad. Right? That's his reference point. But then all of a sudden, Nehemiah remembers that God made some promises. Yeah. Let, me, let, me, let me read to you something that for some of you is a familiar passage of Scripture. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says this. It says, Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. By the way, that, those two words, grace and peace, is what you've already received in Christ. What does that mean? That means that, that word grace means that God favors you. That God is for you. That God is with you. That God will not leave you and he will not forsake you. He will not let you down. It means that you have the peace of God. That you have peace with God. So no matter how you feel or what you do or where you've been or how many mistakes you've done or how many mistakes you will make, you still have an open door to God. You have peace with God and peace goes before you. Peace follows you. And so the Bible says that grace and peace is yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Verse 3 says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. So what is the Bible saying there? It's saying that you've got the full package. You've already received everything that God has for you. You're right with God. You, you have favor with men. You're blessed. You're equipped for a relationship with God and to succeed in this world. But verse 4 is the kicker. Let's look at verse 4. It says, through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises. So what is it talking about? We've received something. We've received something. But it's according to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's according to what we believe and understand from God. Now watch this. It says, through these he has given us very great and precious promises. But why? So that through them, through who? The promises, right? Those promises. So that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So what is the Bible telling us there? That when you get a hold of a promise, I'm not talking about you regurgitating promises. I'm not talking about you just quoting scripture. Right? It, that, that seems real Christ-like, but if there's no belief behind it, guess what? There's not much of Christ being manifested through it. And so the Bible says that when you get a hold of a promise from God, and you understand and you believe that through those promises that are now in your heart and you believe, you begin to participate 
and what God declares is yours. Somebody needs to get excited up in here because you're believing for the first time and you're going to begin to participate in what God has for you. And so our best tool is found in the promises of God. And why is that an important tool? Because if you're going to build something big, if you're going to participate with God's plan, ladies and gentlemen, the number one tool you need is a promise from God. You need to take a hold of it and believe it. Now, let's turn it, let's go back to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 10 as we begin to wrap up here. And I, 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 I hope you don't leave disappointed, but for some of us, I just want you to, I'm just giving you a fair warning, disclaimer here. I'm going to leave you on a cliffhanger today, right? That means that we're only going to a certain point, and you're going to go, but what's the rest of the story? I'm so glad you asked that. Come back next week. <laughs> and you see these, you see these cards that, that you're going to be getting when you leave? It says, be my guest, bring somebody with you. Because listen, it's one thing for you to discover that God has invited you. And he calls you into partnership with him to build something great with your life. To do something really big beyond. To explore and, 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 and experience faith in such a way that you never have. It's great that you're excited about that. But somebody else needs to hear that. So you take one of these. You might be intimidated. You just go, well, hey, just take this. Be my guest. Come with me. That's all you got to do. But bring somebody with you. So... Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 says this. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Let's pause right there for a moment. Remember when we read chapter 1 that it said that it was the month of Kislev in the 20th year? So this is, in our time, this is three months later. So what we see here, what we find here is that Nehemiah, it took him three months before what happened now actually happens. And so it was in the month, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in the presence, in his presence before. Let's pause right there. Something about that you need to understand about these times is this: that to serve the ruling emperor in those days, even if you were a slave, you were supposed to see it as a privilege. It was supposed to be an honor. In other words, when you walked in, part of your job description, no matter how you felt, no matter what was going on in your life, no matter how, how many times you got whipped the night before, you were supposed to walk in there and go, Oh, gracious king, your majesty, good morning. It is my extreme pleasure and desire to serve you this cup of wine. That's what it was supposed to look like. But notice that the Bible says that when Nehemiah took the wine and gave it to the king, it says that he had not been sad in his presence before. Something else you might not know is this, that to approach the king in a state of sadness was a short death sentence. Because what it meant was, is that you weren't pleased to serve him. And so Nehemiah approaches the emperor. And it says, I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, the king took note. He says, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? In other words, there's nothing wrong with you. This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Watch the next part of this scripture. I was very much afraid. Nehemiah was expecting 
something bad to happen. And so let's go to verse 3. It says, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. What you're about to see is that Nehemiah took a step of faith. He took a chance. He says, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it that you want? Nehemiah is expecting a death sentence. And what he discovers is that God and his grace made a way. The king says to him, what do you want? And, here's, and he says, then I prayed to, to, to the God of heaven. So here's what that looks like. The king says, what do you want? And Nehemiah goes, oh God, please let this get better. Please. Just, just one more thing. And so it says, then I prayed to the God of heaven, verse 5, and I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. And then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to, set, to send me, so I set a time. You know what's interesting about this? It took Nehemiah 14 years to get this done. So Nehemiah says to the king, it's going to take me about 14 years. And the king says, done. Mind you, he's talking to the emperor that has conquered them. The emperor who's the one that keeps them subject. And some way, somehow, this slave finds favor in the eyes of the very one that has kept them oppressed. That's a good God. Listen, that's not just Nehemiah's story. Ladies and gentlemen, that's your story. That's my story. That's our story. And so, verse 7 says, I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct while I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. So here's what happens. Nehemiah says, hey king, I'm sad, but could you do me a solid? Could you send me back and let me just rebuild the walls for my people? And the king says, okay. And Nehemiah says, whoa, this faith thing in God really works. He says, let me, let me ask for something else. He says, oh, mighty king, gracious king, would you give me letters so that when I go, all the governors know that you've given me permission and they'll allow us entrance through their lands? And would you also give me a letter for uh, the, the, the keeper that keeps all the stores of your best trees of wood to build so that he can give me all the resources that we need so that we could build the city and the temple and by the way, so that I could build myself a house too. Now watch this, it gets better. Right? Verse 9, and so I went to the governors of trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. But watch this. 
the king also sent army officers and a cavalry with me. So listen, what Nehemiah is figuring out is this. God, you're really true to your promises. And God, listen, I didn't even ask for an army, but you sent a whole army to go before us so that that way even if somebody tries to get a little live, we can let them know that it's God who's with us. So you've provided protection, you've provided the timber, you've provided the resources, you've provided me a house. God, and you've called me to build something bigger than I could conceive. Here's where I'm going to leave you on a cliffhanger today. Verse 10 says, When Samballot and the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I want to leave you with three things as we close here today. Simple. Notice this from this story, that the first step of faith always leads to a next one. Nehemiah started with one step. He dared to go to the king. And when he took that first step, what he discovered was that faith in God calls you to a next step. Listen closely. If you're going to build anything that's worth standing in your life, if you're going to have the life that God promises you, you have to understand something. For some of you, today was your first step of faith. You walked into a church. Some of you, you've been doing this for a while, and so you, you've been taking some steps, but maybe you've settled. For others of you, you're realizing, oh, shoot, this gets better, but I need to start taking some steps in faith. There's always a next step. Romans 1, 16 and 17 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Do I got some believers here today? Okay, then this applies to you. Hey, maybe you don't know Jesus is your Lord and Savior. I want you to see that there's an invitation from God. He says, for the Jews first and also for the Greeks. So that basically means it's for everyone. Verse 17 is, uh, precedes verse 16, and it's important because it says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Listen, from faith to faith. From faith to faith. And so maybe you've been walking this faith thing out for a while. But I, I challenge you, even if you're in a good place, as I said before, it gets gooder. Take that next step. Take that next step. Take a next step of faith. You came here today, great. Hey, take a next step and discover what God's plan is for your life. For some of you, you've taken that step of faith and you've been praying to God about your home, about your relationships, about your job, about your career. Hey, listen, it's time for you to take another step. Maybe you need to begin to share what God is doing in your life. Maybe you need to begin to believe God for some greater things. Maybe you need to take a hold of a promise of God. Whatever it is, take that next step. And you know what's exciting about a life in faith? Verse 17 says that the just shall live by faith. You know what that tells us? That there's always a next step of faith, but that also tells us that there's always a next place to land. God's got some good things in store for you. You better take a hold of this. Second thing we see here is that when you face your obstacles, you open the door for God to remove them. Nehemiah has, is, is facing the biggest obstacle so far. He's going to the king. It took him three months to get enough nerve to go to the king. And when he goes before the king, what he figures out is this. 
He's facing his obstacle. And when he did, it opened the door for God to remove it. Some of you have been busy fighting your own battles, trying to make your own way, trying to do it right on your own, trying to be right with God all on your own based upon religion and whatever nonsense it is that we've subscribed to. But your position, believer, your position, whether you know Christ or you don't, is this. God has called you to be one that stands in victory, not one that fights for victory. Because what he did in Christ is done. It's enough. The Bible gives us this promise that he leads us in a triumphant victory. So all you are supposed to do is walk in the victory that God's promises already reveals to you. And lastly, building something big with your life only seems impossible when you don't factor God into your life. Now, Nehemiah was a believer, but Nehemiah and the people of Israel had deviated. This can happen not just for someone who doesn't know Jesus, but even for us as believers. Building something big in your life requires factoring God into your life. And you know why that's important? Because when you factor God into your life, the facts of life begin to change. What you see is factual, but this is the truth, Pastor Jose. This is really what's going on. I'm not just going to act like it's not happening. No, that's, that's the fact. But the truth is that God is for you. The truth is that God will turn it around. The truth is that God wants to restore everything that the locust is eating in your life. The truth is that God has redeemed you and he's provided a way. The truth is that God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. The truth is that God is giving you his word and his promises and his answer to every one of those promises is yes and amen. Take it. It's yours. You know, young Mary gets approached by an angel once and he says to her, she's about 15 years old, Bible scholars say, angel says to her, you're going to give birth to a child next year and the daddy's going to be the Holy Spirit. And she goes, I ain't never been with no man. Not happening here. And look at the response that the angel of the Lord gives her in Luke 137. This is important because for some of us, we need to get this. For with God, nothing will be impossible start factoring God into the equation and watch the facts of your life change today I leave you with an invitation let's build something big ladies and gentlemen let's see the life that God has for you for your children for your household let's see the impact that God wants to affect through you come to pass it's time to build something big